Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. One of the most dramatic competitions in the history of the men's team pursuit can also be seen as one of the most unfortunate for Australian cycling. All the elements of success were there. The first team to go under 3 minutes 50, a world championship, Commonwealth Games gold, and it was all going so well for the first kilometre of the first 4,000 metre qualifying round of the 2020 Olympic Games. Then suddenly... Oh, disaster! Man down, three live. That was a hard hit. It was a dramatic and shocking blow to the Aussies. A handlebar snapped and Alex Porter hit the ground face first at 65 kilometres an hour. The team was able to redo their qualification round 30 minutes later ultimately securing a bronze medal in a ride-off with New Zealand. But they have secured the bronze and decide to take that, thankfully, as, uh, as their reward. Well, it showed you just how important that was. Our guest on the show today is one of the riders from this five-man Australian team pursuit squad that won bronze. Our guest name is Lucas Plapp. Luke Plapp. Plappy. Happy Plappy. He's a mate of Cyrus's, and something you might be surprised to hear is that he nearly didn't ride in the Olympics at all, for one simple reason. I remember I was real keen to, to go to the road and just start start life in Europe and, and try to become a road rider um, at the start of 2018, and I was pretty much committed to going, and Tim basically tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey mate, I don't, don't think you should go, um, I really think you should do the track, and for me that's sort of how it started because I was I was off I was done I was going on the road and never doing track again um he sort of pulled me aside and said give it one last crack that's sort of something that I'm really thankful for uh and it has has really gone on since then and it has gone on since then meaning he's won junior under 23 and elite national titles and junior world titles and podiums and in March 2020 he realized a dream and got selected for this Olympic Games But of course, it didn't happen in 2020, and Luke had to wait another year. Here's something that's important to know about the team pursuit. At the Olympics, there were six riders in the team. Five on the actual team and one travelling reserve. The six would only race if a rider got COVID. So the coach has to decide who rides in the four-rider team from the five riders. And the riders might not even know who's in the starting lineup until the night before the race. But back in January 2021, it seems Luke was not considered a guaranteed starter against his older and more experienced teammates. Well, this was according to Dave McKenzie on the SBS Cycling Podcast. Look, to to sort of give you the really short background of Luke Platt, he is at the moment considered number five in the team pursuit for the Olympics. So he's that fifth guy that's pushing the other four and... You know, he can be in there, but he's that fifth guy. That's my understanding. But he has obviously stepped up massively in the last six months. And then that work that he's done and the maturity in his body that has come out. Luke will be the first to tell you that he's been getting stronger every year and able to contribute more and more to the team. He ended up replacing the guy who crashed, Alex Porter, in the last two of the four races at the Games. But if we take Dave McKenzie's word for it, that he worked hard to get a place over such a short period of time and has excelled there and on the road, it certainly helps us understand why Luke has progressed so quickly to the top level of cycling. And another thing, 
This conversation isn't strictly about riding and training for the track. It's about his transition to a road professional at world tour level with the Ineos Grenadiers. In this conversation, Luke told us about the difference between training for the track versus the road, including his crazy low CTL at the Olympics. And he also told us about his first three races as a professional. And after one win, one strong performance, and one DNF, you might be surprised about how many things we can learn from Luke on how he approaches performance. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the podcast where scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. The first three races of Luke's professional career have taught him valuable lessons to take into his career. Two of those races were stage races, and one was a one-day race. We're going to start with the one-day race the Australian National Championships. But we're going to back up a couple of weeks and drop right into the most unlikely place you'll find someone's preparing for a five-hour, 185.6-kilometer road race. Well, unlikely for anyone except Luke. Riders, attention! Down the back straight, Graham Frisley for the Street Campbell Barber. He won the birdie with Graham Frisley. Frisley starting the flash drive. Palmer on the inside, Frisley, Palmer. Oh! This excited announcer is calling the Launceston Wheel Race, the feature race in a day of races, in a series of days, and it was a big part of Luke's preparation for the national championship race. We are basically go to Tassie, which is a, I'm sure you guys know, small island off Oz, um, and we get a track bike and we travel around the whole state riding on a, racing on outdoor tracks. Uh, so there's about five or six of them. Uh, and basically there's a few races every carnival, but the main ones are your wheel races, which is like five, six laps, full gas chopping off, like handicapped catching the guys out front. Um, so it's, oh, it's, yeah, complete polar opposite. If you're doing two minutes uh, at as many watts as you can, uh, doing peelers or, or being the P and being the guy that gets up for the win and hopefully making a lot of money. But for me, yeah, that's it's the complete opposite to the training I've done in the lead up to to anything before that. But I always come out of it going really well. Luke did these carnivals as a way to add intensity after a less than ideal start to this season. So you didn't have any specific efforts before Bunnyong? Not this year because of the just the way that uh, my prep worked. I would have, and the plan was to, but when I got concussed, that sort of changed. Um, yeah, and I'm sure this year coming, I'll have a lot of more specific efforts. That's something I really want to get into basically what the run into that looks like because I always think of that race as pretty much a training contest. No one gets to race coming into it. Everyone has this clear block in November and December where if you're in Australia, all you can pretty much do is crits, which crits aren't very specific to that kind of effort at our road nationals course so everyone's basically got to train for it they're starting in the same position coming off a break and whoever can get the most out of themselves on the training track will come in going well obviously a lot of talent comes into it as well for who can actually perform the best at the end of it but for you what did that run in in training look like 
basically talk us through how you went from finishing off your stagiaire at, with Ineos and going, right, I'm going to come out and, and go for Nationals TT and road race. And how did that come about from there? Oh, I love that bike race, firstly. Um, but I had six weeks off almost after the end of the season. I had planned to have three, got back on the bike, and on the second day back, I got concussed and had another three off. So that was a, it was a big break. Um, so that sort of changed the, the prep leading into the summer, and it just turned into basically base, trying to get fit, uh, which is what we knew, knew we needed to work on. Um, and it's not too dissimilar to what I've done in the past years, uh, just for track stuff like that. It's a good time to, to try get fit. Um, and then the only efforts I did leading into that was uh, the track carnivals down in Tasmania. So I sort of, I've always done that every single year. Um, and for some reason, I always come out of them flying. Just quickly, when did you start your base? Like when did, so after that six so weeks? Yeah, I, I'll actually interrupt you here, yeah. Cyrus. <laughs> Yeah. So let's just take a minute to define base because that's actually a word I really kind of dislike. General endurance. Well, yeah. I mean, to an extent, yeah. But the the reason why I hate that word or dislike that word is because it's kind of like the word justice, for example. Um, everyone likes justice. And when people hear base, yeah, yeah, yeah. base training, they think it's a good thing. But... Then you're like, well, what does justice mean? What does base mean? Because no one ever really defines um, uh, the same. Uh, so, because, yeah, it's like this really loosely defined thing. And I could say I don't do base with my athletes, depending on how someone defines it, but based on someone else's division, uh, definition, I probably do do base. Yeah. So why don't you take a minute, uh, a moment here, and uh, define for us what base is for you in this context. It's definitely changed for me over the years. When uh, I got rain to go on the road on the track program, it was just full gas for four hours and see what happens. <laughs> um, just make the most of the road time. And then uh, I've been ripped quite a few times by the coaches this year for going too hard on the road in uh, an easy day. And that's just something that I guess I never really knew the difference. So if, oh, it's been, it's like longer rides four, four, five, six hour rides at not over 200 watts for me. That's been the biggest thing, just like really tapping it out and yeah, building that general endurance. Uh, and that's, that's been the biggest thing. Um, and then like we put some cadence manipulations in there just to, I guess stimulate your legs a bit, get them going rather than just uh, 80 RPM the whole day. Uh, and then, yeah, I've just mixed track carnivals in with that. And I always come out of that flying. I think you go from polar opposites and then it seems to mix nicely in the middle for for nationals. And it also suits the, the TT efforts. After listening to this, I was already convinced Luke had identified a weakness, endurance. And we'll touch on what this means in terms of numbers a little later on. But The formula of a summer of riding track carnivals and riding endurance paid off quickly. What a way to win, coming in solo. It's just perfection. The only man from his team, no other support. He did what he had to do and he did it on his own. He was tactically astute, physically brilliant. Welcome to the new Australian champion. (laughs) And there's plenty of people pleased for him. For anyone that hasn't watched that race, 
do yourself a favor and go watch Plappy tear everyone's legs off in the last three or so laps of that. Luke comes away with a convincing win. And before we go any further, let's put some numbers down for context. Firstly, Luke is, or was, 21 on the day of the race. We're looking at some stuff here firstly for people that don't know you too well. And the thing that most people want to know straight away is, well, looking at your pro cycling stats here, I think it's got you down as 71 kilos, but I'm guessing they're going a bit overs on on that one. You're probably sitting a bit below that at the moment. But what is... If you're prepared to tell us, what is your FTP at currently? Can you share this information with the people? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So uh, well, pro cycling stats has basically got me in the middle there. When when I was prepping for track last year, I think I hit 75 kegs almost. And then just at Catalonia, I was about 60, high 67s, uh, low 68s. So they've hit the nail there. And now I'm back to, back to about 70, which is what I... I guess feel comfortable at and can live a normal life eating without thinking too much about it. And my body likes to sit there. And yeah, nationals, I was about 70, 71. FTP was 415 as of lately. And then it got another 10 watts got added onto it last week. So yeah, it's in that 415, 425 sort of range. And here's a few more numbers to round out his profile. He's born on the 25th of December in the year 2000. His height is 1.81 meters. His weight for the track, 75 kilograms for the road, at best, 67 kilograms. His FTP, 415 to 425 watts, which is 5.9 to 6.2 watts per kilogram. And he has three UCI wins. There's this win, but also as a 20-year-old, he won the elite men's individual time trial. So under rider type, we have time trials. But also by Luke's account, he's good at punchy climbs up to about 20 minutes. Interesting thing there, I was waiting for you to pull me up and say that you're not using FTP, but you are still using FTP. Is your team making use of critical power too much? Like, are you using critical power on the road or on the track at all, or are you still using FTP more than anything else? Yeah, no, I probably should have pulled you up there. No, uh, we use, yeah, critical power and on uh, for TT-based efforts on the on the road and then the track in the last oh, 18 months i would say started going down like your w prime and your critical power sort of last for me sort of road <laughs> um i'm not sure what they're up to now haven't been too involved since the games with that but yeah it's starting to go down that way but definitely when we plan for time trials and yeah and we do our pacings it's based off your yeah, critical power so when you say we just for clarification Ineos. is that oz cycling then or Ineos? yeah yeah. Ineos, sorry, uh, on the road. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, on the track, it's I was cycling. And, yeah, they've started going down that pathway. Um, At Ineos? But I'm sure I'll find a bit more about it. Yeah, so Ineos use it for time trials. Uh, and I haven't, I guess I haven't done enough of them yet to know exactly how we're going. But the one plan I got given, that was, a lot of it was based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, CA, we, we implemented a bit with uh, Jamie Stanley, who was, our sports scientist there uh, mm-hmm. when when I was there. Um, I'm still there, but just haven't been involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they're definitely going down that pathway. This outing was the first race in his new team colours as a full-blown professional, having signed and ridden as a stagiaire towards the end of the 2021 road season. Luke's team, the Ineos Grenadiers, are a natural fit for him. 
He wanted to go to a team that was focused on high performance and also because he sees the value of getting things like a time trial position as aero as possible. It also doesn't hurt that there are a bunch of riders that have come from track and are still able to manage road and track together. And the introduction to how the team worked came very early on from when Luke had been allocated his new coach. The one trainer I've got, Connor Taylor, so he's actually got a PhD in uh, interval training and he's a very smart man, um, but we get along really well. He's a South African actually, but uh, lives in the UK now. Um, but yeah, the whole Ineos coaching group is involved uh, and the DS group as well. So I could pretty much get a message from anyone in the team on about the training day or, or what or how I'm going. Uh, but yeah, Connor is who I have uh, a relationship with uh, in the coaching sense. And we speak one, two times a day, sometimes three times a day. It's uh, yeah, I'm really comfortable with what we have together. And it's, I think my girlfriend gets a bit jealous of how much we chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's nice to have that, that good relationship. And it's good to hear that um, you guys are getting a bit of the personal side and regular contact because you do hear that um, particularly the Ineos gets a bad rap for treating riders like robots, but um, I don't think anyone actually sees what's going on behind the scenes there. Um, and to, to yeah, hear that you've got contact with so many people and also got that one person that is working with you as well that you can bounce everything off, um, I think that's super important at any level. So to hear that it's happening at the top level makes a lot of sense there. Yeah, I think uh, I think sort of something that we can bounce off that is that we've got, oh, I don't know the exact number, but I think every coach only looks after three guys, three or four guys, and that's so they can have that personal relationship and really focus on it. Yeah. Um, it's not a nine-to-five thing like we're messaging at 7 o'clock to 10.30 p.m. and can pick up the phone and call whenever. Um, and he flies to Girona a fair bit or will come on a race. So we're, we're seeing each other a minimum once every three weeks, I would say. Uh, and that's that's the same across the board with everyone. Yeah. And how early did that start? So obviously after Olympics last year, I'm assuming you had a bit of a break and chilled out a bit and then the attention went to the road. So how soon did that start with the Ineos coaching staff that they sort of took the reins and started telling you what to do? Uh, so my first call was uh, in Brisbane before we even left for the Games with Connor and that's sort of when he, uh, I guess, had access to what I was doing and we started that relationship because straight after the games was when I was starting my stage year. So I didn't actually have a, have a break after that. It was quite a massive, massive season, uh, in terms of mentally being yes. on. So yeah, as soon as we finished the games, it was straight into Lavenir, which lasted about 48 hours and then, uh, into, into world's training. So yeah, me and Connor. And I think because we knew we were getting straight into it and I had some stage year races with the team, we wanted to really start that relationship early. Uh, yeah. So for me, it's oh, it, that's, I think that's been the biggest benefit of, of starting early. I didn't go to the team camps and, and meet everyone, but starting that early with Connor and, and meeting the guys yeah. at the Stagiaire sort of felt like I've, I've already been a part of the team when the season started this year. And I'm assuming that for you, that was a big draw card. Obviously, um, plenty of team names were getting flown around when you started lighten it up at the start of last year that we're giving you offers but was that with the big draw card for Ineos knowing that there was that real focus on high performance and so many staff allocated to each rider essentially to make sure they're getting the best from themselves yeah I think uh being from Oz we've sort of got that background in 
in sports science and performance and and value it maybe more than others do. So yeah, for me that was that was pretty much the number one draw card in that sense of things and knowing that there's uh, no stone unturned. Yeah, I do remember seeing an interview, I was trying to find it, with Pat Lane after your TT win, I think last year, Pat Lane's the director sportive for Inform, which is for those non-Australians, uh, probably the best Australian amateur team at the moment, but they've they've sent a few riders to the world tour now. And I remember the interview with him, he was basically saying, yeah, Pappy drives us up the wall because he needs all of this stuff done that we haven't been doing before with the TT set up, with the numbers, with the training, with the preparation. So that's obviously something that um, that you're passionate about. Like you've been big on the high performance side and the numbers side of things the whole time. When when did this start? Like was this something that you grabbed from when you're a junior or has that really only come in since you've started to realize oh, I could go to the top level of this sport? Uh, I think it was when I started track and I was I didn't have the power, the raw power the other blokes did. So I needed to find out a way to hold the shoe or when I get to the front of a TP, be able to hold my split. Uh, and that was knowing that I didn't have the power to do that. So I think that's where I really saw the benefit of of nulling those little things and, and the aero side and performance side of things. And I think when you're on the track and have that massive focus, it's sort of that then moves over to the to the road bike and TT bike, which is where my passion and love was. And I guess when you find a 0.2 of a second gain in a team's pursuit, it's five seconds on a TT bike, which is, I guess, really cool to see where that's where the big gains come from. I was chatting to Cam Worth uh, last week in France and he was like, oh, how, how can I get faster on the, on the Ironman leg? And I was like, mate, we've got 180K to work with. Like when I find 10 seconds, that turns into a minute for you. So, yeah, I think uh, for the road stuff, it's awesome just seeing how big a gains you can make instead of talking one meter over 4K on the on the track. Yeah. And then obviously like that's sort of something like everyone sort of says, oh, I don't know how people are able to – they want to know how people are transferring stuff from track to the road in a – physiology sense which we'll definitely get into but um that's something i think people don't even factor in that there's so many things from all the stuff around that like position um just the yeah aerodynamics even just equipment just being able to steal a a helmet off ca or something like that which i know track riders have been able to do for their road tts that stuff is basically cutting corners like the track is making the road easier than if you're already having that stuff and that we've seen there's so much more investment from the national federations in the track on that side of the performance that we don't probably the road has been a bit behind at least away from teams like the one you're on now so um yeah i think that's something that people don't even factor in that that it transfers across it makes that transfer between the disciplines easier rather than harder yeah, and I think the other thing is it sort of opens road teams up to to possibilities or developing new equipment because national federations usually aren't locked into sponsors. So they're, they're using what is the absolute fastest and best equipment, whether some road teams are, are locked into to sponsors and don't even know what a different shape or a, or a different product can do and offer. So I think bringing those sort of products uh, to a team can help uh, explain how you can become faster and then you can then further develop that or develop something very similar to get a to get a similar result i think that's the biggest thing i've i've noticed was yeah 
you can get locked into sponsors, but on the track, you're, you're using the absolute fastest equipment. This includes areas like helmets, which Luke's teammate actually had a hand or a head or his shoulders, rather, in developing the one he used as a track rider and now on the road. And is there anything that you've brought from the track, like equipment-wise or even like procedure-wise, that Ineos has said, nah, you can't use that? Uh, no, nah, I've been lucky in the sense that uh, the cast helmets is the biggest one we worked on on the track. It's the, it's the same sponsors with Ineos. So that was the I think that was super lucky because that was what we developed a lot for Tokyo. Uh, so that was able to just transfer straight over. Um, were you working with the brand to develop that or they were developing that independently and it just happened to be that it was working for you guys as well? No, we, or not met myself, but yeah, Cycling Australia developed that helmet. Uh, yeah, John Pittman, our aerodynamicist, he, he's designed a few helmets for Cask actually in the past. I think uh, the, the Evo Pro for Froomey um, and now this, this latest big one that we use, yeah, he developed that for the track and that was uh, designed on Sam Wellsford's shoulders really. We've got a bit of a mannequin of him on the yeah. on the wind tunnel in the track and they worked out what's going to get over his big shoulders and, yeah, it happened to work for all of us. It must be um, pretty cool to come to a team like Ineos, which obviously might be intimidating for many riders coming there or anyone basically coming into an organisation like that and to know that you're using they're using stuff that, you've been a part of helping develop that must um, take a bit of, I guess, the intimidation factor out of it when you've been in such a high-performance environment already that um, making that transition becomes a bit easier after that. Yeah, for sure. I've just got to, just got to remember I'm not the, uh, not the top dog there, so I've got to find my place before I bark orders or ask for things. After Nationals, Luke was on a plane to his first World Tour race, the UAE Tour. And coming off an Australian summer, there was a high chance that he would fare well in the terrain and the hot weather. But doing well in the heat is not something that just comes to you. Even if you've ridden for a few months in hot conditions, Luke believes in heat training. And he also believes that this is something that is overlooked by most riders. But the biggest one for me leading into Nats is saunas and heat prep. Like, I love it and find massive gains. Like, swear by it almost. Yeah. Um, Same for TDU. Like, I just love my saunas and, and heat prep and I think that's especially on a on a Sunday in Bunnyong when it's 35 degrees like it was uh this year it's uh yeah that's everything like well I thought I was absolutely humming along those last three laps like I thought I was flying and I got the power up and I was doing like 340 for five minutes up the climb yeah like <laughs> that's 4.9 watts a kilogram for five minutes if you're wondering but let's dig into heat training for a moment so when you do those sauna sessions, how is your recovery from them? And how is your recovering during those heat blocks? Um, because for me, and I definitely probably don't recover it as well as you do. Um, but for me, I tend to struggle with the, um, with the heat sessions and those heat blocks. And I found this out because um, during my PhD, I did a pilot study where I did pre and post submaximal exercise at uh, 50% VO2 max for an hour. And then in between those two sessions, I did uh, five sessions of uh, in this portable sauna. And 
one thing I notice is that as I was doing that in training, my trainings just balance the model that came was coming out of the uh, model, the number that was coming out of the model. Um, that was definitely uh, not how I was actually feeling. Um, and it had to have been because of this additional stress. Now, I probably could have done a better job managing my hydration. And I imagine if I do it, did it again, I'd probably manage it better. And I also would imagine that if you are working with someone that they are probably helping you manage your hydration and your heat blocks as well. Um, so for you though, personally, are you also feeling these, uh, discrepancies when you're going through a heat block between how you feel versus, uh, what your training load is at, uh, when you're adding the heat? Yeah. Yeah. You're always tired. Um, I think with the track, we learn it sort of when we do heat prep before racing, uh, we know we've got to take like 10% off the top of our efforts, like power wise, like we can't expect to be hitting the same numbers. Is that when you're doing the efforts in heat or just after doing a sauna, for example? No, no, just like during a heat block, like say I'm doing a 10 day block of heat. Uh, yeah, that 10 days, you know, you're not going to be hitting the power, but geez, when you come out of it, I've, I've always gone well and, and find a bit extra. So I think it's knowing in your head that I guess the most, important 10 days pre-comp where you want to yeah. be having I guess good morale and mental vibes that your power is not going to be peaking but you'll come out of it really well yeah now is this the Jamie Stanley special yeah Jamie, yeah yeah so Jamie this is where it started with Jamie that's his specialty yeah so correct me if I'm wrong I think this is how it goes you basically get into like a 40 degree uh, environmental chamber and basically, I think you do like an all-out minute effort or five-minute effort somewhere in between. Um, and it's a pretty hard effort. And then after that, you just kind of continue riding. Uh, am I correct in that? Yeah, similar. So that's on the track when we've got access to the chamber. Uh, Pre-Nats, I'm just in a bright or, or somewhere and I have to just do my own uh, heat. Um, so I'm not doing, I'm not riding in that, but yeah, pre-track, it's basically like a ramp build TT warm up as such in the chamber and then, uh, sit up and pedal at about 90 Watts for the next 30 minutes and your heart rate's still at 160. So that's sort of his, his prep and what we've always done with that. Um, and then, yeah, for me, when it's summertime and I'm in pride, I'm either in the, in the hot bath, which is uh, like 39 degrees and I can only last about 25 minutes, but lose close to two kilos. Um, and the sauna is more like a 40, 45 minute thing. Uh, and yeah, your heart rate's at uh, 150 odd, uh, lose two kilos, replace that. And that's about all it is, to be honest. There's not a whole heap of science that goes into it when I'm doing it by myself. It's just get hot, get uncomfortable and, and it'll help for the race. And, and you just, um, uh, I'll just go quickly, but you just chucking that on the, after your sessions, so you're not really changing your sessions around. That's just after you finish your training for the day. Yeah. And you do a, a bath or a sauna in the other. Yeah, yeah. It's an evening sort of thing before bed. Yep. Yeah. I actually caught a presentation with Jamie Stanley talking about environmental stuff and training and the heat. And the, he brought up that anecdote of putting you guys in the environmental cham- chamber while he's preparing you for track events. 
Um, it was actually kind of funny because I can't remember if he was really explicit about including that bout um, in his um, in his presentation until later on. Um, yeah, the saunas and training in the heat will definitely heat acclimatize and heat acclimate you for and allow you to have better performance in hot conditions. Um, but there's also some, some research, some hypotheses that kind of hint towards that maybe training in the heat and heat acclimation will help you perform better in temperate conditions. And one of the things that I think about around that um, is, is it, like I said, about training in the heat or is it something else that's going on there in terms of, so for example, when you guys did the training in the heat and you had you do that heavy bout, well, because you did that heavy bout in the heat, you actually experienced more cardiovascular strain, cardiovascular stress than you would have if you would have performed that same bout in temperate conditions. And so the kind of the thinking there is, is, well, is it the heat only, or is it because the heat allowed you to experience a very heavy bit of and unique cardiovascular stress that could have only been experienced in the heat? And so my question to you is, as someone that has experienced um, both this kind of heavy, intense exercise in the heat, as well as doing just you know, sauna bathing, which would be heat ac- heat acclimating without exercise. Of these two intervention types, which one do you think benefits you more kind of anecdotally? Yeah, see, I think sort of similar in a way to why I do it. There's You do it for your heat acclimatization and, and being comfortable in the heat, but then you also do it for your plasma and hemoglobin levels and bumping them up. Um, so I think on the track sense, we were doing it to get yeah, your blood higher or your, your blood levels higher. But on the road sense, uh, in January, I'm more doing it for the acclimatization, knowing that I'm still going to get gains out of it. But yeah. Yeah, on the track, you're doing it to mm-hmm. to get gains uh, in your body sort of thing rather than just comfort in the heat. So that they're the two reasons I do it. Um, yeah, and, and that's sort of what Jamie's taught me yeah. in, a, in a sense. Like all my stuff has come from him and he's mm-hmm. – He's who opened my eyes to heat, and yeah, I swear by it now. Um, if that sort of goes where you're going, I don't know the nitty gritty, but I'm either doing it to increase my blood levels or to be comfortable. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the thing is, there's much more evidence for heat acclimation's effect when you exercise in the heat uh, and the benefits there than there are for the performance benefits and temperate conditions after heat acclimation. But the thing is, uh, temperature is a gradient. And as soon as you're out of the kind of optimal temperature range, which is somewhere between 10 to 13 degrees conditions dependent, uh, Mm -hmm. then you are potentially experiencing a heat stress that is potentially having a negative effect on your body during exercise. And that temperature could be as low as maybe 25 degrees potentially. Mm. Um, and that's, but that's not exactly what people would consider hot, right? 
So it gets into a tricky conversation of what really is temperate and what is hot and where do these performance gains from heat acclimation come from? Sure. Obviously, if you get up to 40 degrees Celsius, it's heat acclimation is going to have a bigger effect yeah. than if you're down at 25 degrees Celsius, we think. But it's it's a really interesting to talk with someone like you that has actually done this type of training with high intensity training in the heat because it's not, well, you know, it wasn't exactly interval training because you guys only did the one effort. Um, and I think the thinking there with that one effort is, you know, he wanted you guys to do something that was really in, intense uh, and that would help to bring your core temperature up and kind of augment the heat uh, stress uh, for the heat acclimation better than if you guys just rode at simply at a lower intensity, like an, an endurance pace or whatever. So, yeah, that was his thinking for including the intense effort there. But I think there's kind of maybe a serendipitous thing going on where putting in that intense effort in the heat probably had a cardiovascular effect along with it. Um, and a cardiovascular effect that you probably don't get with the effort alone or the yeah. heat alone. And for sure, I guess that's what, and that's why other people need chambers. But I think for us in Oz in January, like we're doing our efforts out on the road and she's still 35, 40 degrees anyway. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to be doing that in the chamber. Like for me doing an extra sauna session is just adding to the heat training I've just done all day. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well in, in Bright where I know you go up to a bit and anyone from Southern Australia would have been there for plenty of training camps. Um, it's just the same as, as any mountain range in Europe where in the middle of summer, the valleys just get crazy hot. Um, so yeah, some of the time when you're just doing efforts there, if you're, if you're going out in the middle of the day, it, you're just getting that heat acclimation there anyway. And I remember going up on training mm. camps and you often get weeks there where it's above 40 degrees during the day and people are always trying to say, oh, let's leave at seven, let's leave at eight. And I was always the one just saying, nah, let me sleep and um, and let's go out at 10 because um, then we're getting the heat stuff as well. Yeah, we're going to see absolutely rubbish numbers. Um, we're not going to be hitting the numbers that you would like to be hitting two weeks out from your, your event if that camp's a, a nationals training camp. But it's about, as you said before, just being prepared to see some numbers that you don't want to be seeing, but knowing that you're going to be getting those gains and that when you actually do recover from it and you're in the situation for the race, that that's when you want to be seeing those good numbers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess it's funny because you bring up something about the heat acclimation. Yeah, probably everyone that was with you at nationals poppy had some level of heat acclimation and maybe a lot of them felt uh, like what they I think had it goes was unnoticed, good enough to be but honest if you weren't i think I it, think uh, in the australian domestic scene the uh riding in the summer is what people consider enough um yeah i, I think that race is, is just honestly i think if you put a world to a field on that course it'd be one of the hardest if not the hardest in the world what that the the demands of that course is um also yeah i think it's just a it's a different race a lot of people just train in the mornings it's just natural like people work yeah. and people go out and 
and you start early in Australia in summer because it's uncomfortable riding in the middle of the day as well. But that race starts that race starts at twelve thirty and guaranteed going through the feed zone every lap on Midland Highway there, it's just absolutely scorching on that road. So I think, yeah, so many people think, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I've been training in the heat the whole time when they've been, yeah, just scraping 30 degrees in at 11 o'clock when they're finishing their ride. But, yeah, it's just a different story on race day in that environment. Um, so going on from from using those saunas in the heat box. Now you're training up for, is Romandy your next race, Tour of Romandy? Yeah, so we've got oh, 10 days now, I think, to them. Yeah, and you're in Girona at the moment. Yeah, so I've just come down the mountain. Yeah. It was a snow day the other day, so I thought, let's not go there. But uh, also the TT is the goal at Romandy. Um, so some thick oxygen down here is what I'm enjoying at the moment with that. And are you doing going to do a heat block before that for the gains? Obviously, Romandy's not going to be that hot at this time of year. Often it's been like pissing with rain or snow I've seen in previous years. But are you still going to be hitting the sauna to target that TT? Nah, I find uh, I've got to be really careful how much heat preps I do. And that's like limiting it to two or three a year just to get the absolute most out of it to peak from it. Um, and for me, it's a, oh, I guess it's a pretty easy, it's pretty easy where I fit that in. Uh, it's usually worlds, nationals and, and commies or Olympics if that's, if that's in the year. So that's what this year is. It'll be com games, worlds, and then uh, go again at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you just got to target it. I think I've got a sauna and, and that's something that I, I love doing, but in terms of a proper, like your 10 day heat block where you're doing it every day. Um, yeah, I think I've got to be quite specific when I target that. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, also with that, if you go into commies on the track, at what point do you put the road bike in the shed for a bit and, and switch to the track or is it has it changed around a bit i know i've heard some rumors about what's going on on the track but um has it changed around a bit now that they want you to keep racing on the road for a bit longer yeah i think they're they're seeing that i guess the best guys in the world and, and girls at the world at tokyo we're all road pros um so i think it's opening the eyes to everyone of of what you can do uh and recently aaron gate flew from flew from girona to go to oceanas and took the piss to be honest yeah um so i think they're seeing more and more that the what you can get offered in the world tour is just something that you can't train for or or gives you the exposure to so i'll spend a fair bit of that chunk all on the road um and the tt at commies is the big thing for me too so i'm not really going to put the roadie or or tt bike away uh just for the track bike um so just try to balance the two throughout the uae tour luke was performing well able to help out the team and get some solid results. Like on stage seven on the finishing climb to Jebel Hafid, the iconic climb of the UAE tour, sitting in second wheel squeezed between Rafael Maika and today Pogacar with 6.7 kilometers to go and going on to finish fifth. One second behind Jal Almeida and only 15 seconds behind the winner Pogacar on the 10.8 kilometer climb. The pace is definitely on. You can see it's starting to uh, to drop more and more riders, and uh, it's becoming that select front group. And uh, Luke Plapp is having to do the work for uh, 
for Yates to uh, to get Micah back into to the mix again. But looking down the group here, it looks actually like uh, like Jan Hurt is uh, is in trouble, or is that Rain Taramek? No, there's two of them down there. So Almeida crosses it right now. Platt comes home, uh, as does Verona. What a day! This was seen as a remarkable ride by many, but he quickly discovered that racing day after day at World Tour level. It was much harder than any other racing he'd done before. I think UAE was the was the one that sort of gave me a big false sense of security in that sense. Like we were doing every day it was five hours, but yeah, like some of the stages we were doing 100, 110 average, yeah. like twenty two k an hour, hundred watts yeah. for four and a half, yeah. and then a twenty minute effort, which which suits me. But yeah, I guess that sort of just gave me a false sense of security in terms of what what I can do with fatigue resistance because you're not fatigued at all yeah. coming into those climbs at the end there yeah. and then get to Catalonia and, yeah, it's a whole kettle of fish. Yes, Walter Catalonia was a completely different kettle of fish, going from a top five stage finish to a DNF on the second last day of the race. It wasn't without a last stand for the team, though. What happened on the last day there? Did you end up beating it? Nah, I, uh, I just went... Full gas, and then I <laughs> yeah, got I heard I heard um I heard some stories coming out of the peloton that this um yeah some colourful language, but this <laughs> this bloke in the green and gold bands just destroyed the race for everyone on the first climb, and then pissed off. So that mm, sums it up. Yeah, <laughs> was there just a a nice bus there waiting for you with some warm clothes or? What was the go? Yeah, well, look, we we didn't have much to lose that day. We were uh, we weren't there on GC, uh, um, and we'd lost I think three riders or four riders by that stage already. So, and to be honest, we found that uh, just like my fatigue resistance wasn't there. Like I thought I felt great, but as soon as I ticked over like three thousand cows in a stage, I just had nothing compared to the other guys. Whether it's what they're the best at. Um, so I basically couldn't offer anything to the boys at towards the end of the stage in terms of help. Um, so it was like, what can I do to add add some value in a way? Because uh, I was just swinging in hoop group by the end of it. Um, so yeah, I got on the turbo before the stage, uh, warmed up, took some caffeine, and basically treated it like a time trial. And finish line was at the top of the top of that first climb. We got to the foot of our uh, first major peak, the Category 1 test that's uh, opened the day, uh, the Lebres Muzara. Um, things settled down just a little bit. Uh, Platt was up there with Calapas and Igita. Yeah, you heard that right, and if you're thinking, hang on a minute, aren't they very close to the lead? Yeah, Igita started the day seven seconds down, um, and uh, uh, Carapaz uh, none too far away either. So, Carapaz down in ninth place at 27 seconds in arrears. Well, they decided that they were going to push on. And a whole enormous group of chasers set off after them, 28 of them in total. It's been paired down to 23. Plapper was with the front trio, has now backed out of it along with Barter. On stage six, the road went uphill, basically from the start until just after 40 kilometres. So what did the team decide to do? Luke rode hard to the top of the first climb, splitting the peloton and taking out the KOM sprint and the KOM on Strava on that first mountain, before being dropped from the first group and eventually abandoning the race. This was used as a launch pad. His teammate, Richard Carapaz and Higita, and it worked. 
as Richard Carapaz from Luke's team stayed away all day and won a two-up sprint to win the day 48 seconds ahead of the bunch. Yeah, so it must have been pretty nice to see that you're still able to um, put out those kind of numbers at the end of a stage race like and um, and also destroy a, a World Tour Peloton. That must have been something good to see, especially if you were a bit worried earlier in the week about your fatigue resistance and obviously you start to have it's hard not to have some doubts creep in at that point. So that must have been a good day for you to just think, oh, hang on, I can still do this and I belong at this level. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, like I lapped the Garmin and, and really actually did try to do a 20-minute test in a way. So it was nice to, <laughs> I guess, test myself and, and see the watts and, and know that, yeah, after a hard week, they were there. Yeah, that's exactly what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. Did he turn it into a test <laughs> to see what kind of numbers he get could get? Yep. Oh, 100%. Yeah, the week before, my coach was in Girona and we are doing a fair bit, a bit of testing. I was like, oh, we did a 20-minute like under over tests and I had some pretty good numbers. I was like, mate, can I just do a straight out 20? Like I can go, I can get a bigger number if I just do a sustained effort. He's like, no, 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 save it for the race, save it for the race. Um, so I finally got to do one, which was, uh, which was nice to see like the, I guess the raw 20 minutes is there, which I guess is something I bring from the track and, and my time trialing. But yeah, it left a massive hole in what I need to work on, which was that at the end of a stage and, and building that fatigue up. So, you have a race like that and then the you obviously would have worked that out yourself, I'm guessing, during the race. And then is a coach um is your coach specifically telling you, Okay, this is something we need to work on now when he sees that that's going on during the race? Yeah, I think we all knew it was sort of the case going into it. Um and it's not really again something we can work on in in a sense. It's just race days. Like that's what I need. It's just put me in some races and and learn that way and just build it up over time. Um, like yep. like we sort of said before, I don't want to overtrain in training and, and cook myself. So it's just smash yep. the race days and, and learn over the year. Yeah. So is there any any race sims at all in your training program or it's just relying on those races rather than simulating it in training? Nah, it's sort of no, nah, there's nothing like that as such, which is I was used to race sims. It's what we used to, it's what we do in Australia. We pick a pick one of the three races we have all year and just do sims for the whole year. But yeah. uh, so no, none of that here. Yeah. So we had Dejo Sanders on the podcast, and um, he's one of the trainers for DSM. And at the end of the conversation, he brought up this kind of new area of research around fatigue resistance with cyclists, and he's kind of involved in that area of research. And for this component, for what you're talking about there at the end of the race and, you know, how can you still go like you were going at the beginning of the race? How can you go at the end of the race in the same manner? And he said uh, to him anecdotally that it seemed, what seems to correlate with this strength is the is people that have with lots of races and hard miles on their legs and basically a high training age. So, yeah, lots and lots of years and many, many miles on the bike. Probably not exactly what you want to hear there, Plappy, uh, but considering you've been doing mm. this for 10 years, is that what you said, Cyrus? Yeah, when did you when did you start riding? Like, Yeah, I started at 12 and then like, 
full time, like no no other sports was about like seven e. But uh, yeah. like you said, with race days just then, like I think in the last twelve months, I've done like six road races before these uh, these tours started this year. Like it's just something we don't get in Oz, and mm-hmm. even more so when it's an Olympic year. Like yeah, there's just absolutely no race days. And obviously with that preparation for track um, stuff, like obviously Tokyo, you're preparing for that, but also every lead up, as you said, you're doing all your training sessions have to be done when you're fresh so that you can do your mm. your lead up races when you're fresh. And when you go back and look through all that, that's a lot of time spent being pretty fresh, which means there's a lot of time spent not doing long road races, which is what basically your competition's been doing for the last three years at least and and for a lot of them 10 years so uh yeah i guess in that sense it's it can be frustrating but um it seems like you got a pretty good outlook of just well that's something that i can't control so i'm just going to work on the things i can control which is obviously the the program that your coach has given you now and then also just showing up to to races and and being prepared to not feel amazing at the end of them but um trying to do what you can Mm. for your teammates anyway Something that's important to understand here is the difference between track and road training, specifically the load or volume needed to be competitive in either one. So let's talk about load for a minute. We'll use Training Peaks is chronic training load or CTL. And building fatigue resistance at world tour level is just one of those things that, as mentioned, just takes time and race days. The thing with Luke is being a track rider, and even though he was an endurance track rider, you still don't get the volume of training or CTL numbers a serious amateur would top out at during a season. So, um, yeah, talking about transitioning from the track to the road, obviously it's not the the classic you are only a track rider and then you decided you want, you wanted to become a road rider. For anyone that's followed you, they would have known that you've, you've dabbled in both for quite a while now. But um, going across to the road there's a a few things that you would assume but I sort of want to ask the question to know whether they're basically a myth or um whether it does happen but I've heard some some rumors from some people that you guys were coming into Olympics on the track with some crazy low CTL numbers can you remember off the top of your head what your CT well CTL was coming into Tokyo last year yeah it wasn't it wasn't above 80. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was <laughs> high 70s, I, I believe. It wasn't, uh, which to be honest, isn't much different to any track race we've ever entered at the same time in saying that. So, it's not like this was a one off. But, uh, yeah, that was a very, very similar number, uh, to what we've entered a lot of track races on in the past. Um, and for reference, what's it at now for you? Uh, one. 28 i think yeah and is that something you'd sit at for most of the road season yeah between 115 and and 125 is pretty much where i'm at the whole time uh i don't think i've ever seen above 130 really um yeah so which if you're training at altitude uh it might actually be artificially low right now yeah and i think like it, it creeps up when you're on five race days six race days in a row but then I have a week off and it, it rockets back down. So that's about where I like to sit. Um, yeah, I don't really get it any higher than that. Not like a a Mark O'Brien who's a who's a Melbourne a Melbourne lad who sits at I think about one eighty 
for the whole year. I don't chronic think he drops over, below that. Chronic overload. Chronic overtrainer. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what I was going to say from that is, uh, was that increase in load something that was tough to do? Um, I can already guess the answer to this, but um, people be interested to to hear, like, what what sort of happened as you're increasing that load? And I assume it had to happen fairly quickly because you went straight into the stagiaire and, and doing some of those races that you were targeting, you would have wanted to get that up there. So how did you go about increasing that training load? And was it something that you're ever worried about seeing basically it increase by 50%? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of it was cutting out the efforts at the start. I think on the track, that's the reason why it is so low because we're doing such high, high-powered efforts that you can't, you can't really be fatigued in any state. Um, so as soon as I got on the road, it basically just turned into your yeah, 25-hour-plus weeks. Um, I crept into the 30s a couple of times, but not really that often. Um, and for me, it was just building that base and I think getting a, a solid three-day block system sort of started and, and working off that to build to build the, uh, the fitness up. Um, and yeah, it has been a challenge, I think, after Catalonia, which was oh, three weeks ago now. That was a real big eye-opener to my body. Like that was the most uh, calories I've burned in a week by 10,000 um, and the most TSS by 500 in a week ever. Um, and that was just a one-week stage race. So I think that was a massive shock to my body and something I wasn't ready for. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be the case for, for a lot more one-week stage races. And then when I hit a grand, it's going to be a whole new world as well. Uh, but I definitely felt like coming out of Catalonia, I was, I was a completely different rider. So it's, it's cool seeing that, but man, it took me a long time to recover. Coming up, Luke finds out that changing from road to track isn't the only transition he has to make. There's even more new stuff to consider. That's after the break. I just want to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show. And remind you that if you find value in the show, it would mean a lot to us if you shared our content with other cycling performance enthusiasts in your life. Also, if you are seeking some additional guidance in the world of cycling performance beyond what we deliver in the podcast, we're keen to help you. My co-host and I offer coaching services for cyclists and consulting services for cycling coaches and teams. Our objective is to provide support tailored to your specific goals and increase the level of confidence you have in your cycling performance results. So definitely check us out online and contact us with any inquiries you may have. Links to each of our websites can be found in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to the Cycling Performance Club podcast and our conversation with Luke Plapp. After dreaming of becoming a pro cyclist for a long time and successfully navigating both road and track commitments at the same time, he knows there's a lot more to consider than just training if you want to be successful over the long term, especially when you have to live and race away from somewhere you love. As much as it's probably hard to hear, like living in Europe the whole time, I think that's why I ride well being in Oz. Like, I think that's why I'm flying. Like January, February period, like I'm not training very hard or, or doing the efforts, but uh, like I'm loving life when I'm over there. I love my time in Bright. Like I think there's, there's no stress. Mum's cooking me dinner every night. Like my washing's getting done. Richie's the biggest proponent of that. Like everyone gives Richie, mm. so Richie Port, this is, everyone gives him so much shit every year for going so well at Tour Down Under. He's not trying to peak for Tour Down Under every year and make sure that he's in his no. best form at Wonga. He's just riding around in Tassie enjoying riding his bike. 
Like the fact that he ends up going well isn't because he's decided, oh, I'm going to do all these crazy one percenters and use all these little extras that were sort of discussed to be going well at down under. I don't think he's using any of them. I think it's just because, yeah, he's enjoyed his time in Australia. And it's something I always think about with Australians and Americans, just how good could they be if the race, like if our sport was based on this continent, like if riders got to live at home the whole time. You look at good French riders, Italian riders, Spanish riders, these Grand Tour riders, they're living at home the whole time. Like they're where they like to be. They're around their family and friends. Totally different, I reckon. And, And they're performing well. You see how well Australians and Americans have performed in the past when having to change a whole continent i'd just love to be able to try that we'll never know because it's impossible to live in australia and race professionally but it's it's something that you always think about yeah yeah well i i trained with richie uh over the summer like my uh my missus lives in tassie and we're i'm not too far from his place so we did a lot of training together and yeah i think we both just loved it there um and what he how he trained it's no different he's just happier he's He's going for comms, like we're chopping off, just having fun. And I think a lot of that's to do with the weather as well. Like it's so much easier to do five hours and have a bit of a chop off mid-ride and go to a coffee shop because the weather's nice rather than rugged up in all your kit here in, in Europe. Like I think that's that's one of the biggest things for me. I train better because I'm I'm enjoying the weather. Like it's easier to punch out that extra hour or and, and, and things like that. Um, yeah. I love it back home and I, th- I know he does and I think it's the same for almost every Aussie. Yep. Yeah, that whole conversation about Australians transitioning from here during the summer over to Europe, what is basically winter, um, that's something I've thought a lot about and is actually something that was a research project that was proposed in my PhD as one of the studies for it. Um which I never got around to because it was just so huge and there was a lot of data that I would have had to collect it for just for that bit. But however, I mean, it's still something I've done a fair amount of thinking and reading about. So um, if you ever have any questions about that transition and all the crazy things that could be potentially going on there, um, yeah, feel free to ask. Um, but yeah, you should also definitely check out that uh, bonus episode that we put out with Harry Sweeney where we were talking about hot and cold and that transition for Australian athletes as well. Yeah. I think it's why uh, a lot of us migrate to Girona, to be honest, because it's, there's a bit of an Aussie Kiwi base here. Like mm-hmm. you've been here, Cy, and like I was here when you were here, like it's, it's sort of a comfortable environment as such that we can find in Europe. Definitely. Yeah. As much as anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, you're surrounded by friends. There's that. Um, there's the the aspect of being able to enjoy some non-bike stuff. Like I think that's the big draw mm. card for why Australians like being here in summer. Is you can do your training and then you can like actually clock off for the day and go do something else. So as much as it's, it doesn't feel like a real job, like um, in Europe at times if you're if you're away on a training camp or doing a big race block based based in Belgium for example it can it can feel like a job and it feels like it's 24 hours a day if you're just surrounded by mm. the cycling so the fact that there's that base there in Girona for people to set themselves up go have a beer at the end of the week with a mate and talk about something different talk about the footy the cricket whatever um I think that is just such a huge aspect of why um, 
Australians live there and why they perform well when they're based there. Yeah. Yeah, we just need to move Bright Brewery to Girona <laughs> and be laughing. I'd be <laughs> plenty of good watering holes in Girona anyway. <laughs> Brewery? Are we still talking about pro riders here? Well, you know what they say about pro cyclists. They're people too. Anyway, being able to adapt to life in a new country seems to be a commonality between successful Australian transplants. And it's more than finding a good bar to hang out in. Two things I'd say. Obviously, I don't know the culture growing up as a kid in America, but culture in Aussie is your play sport. Like that's that's how I've grown up and Mm -hmm. we we dream it and love it. Um, But then the other thing with like the internal summer, like for sure, that'd be a thing that I think I'll always have. But if I was to, if you were to name the top five Aussie pro cyclists, even go top 10 Aussie pros, take Richie out of it, all of them live in Europe full time, pretty much. Like mm-hmm. Caleb Bling, uh, Ben O'Connor now, like all of these guys, Jai. Jai, all of them are living full time in Europe. Hagee, like they're setting up here as if it's their home. Um, so I don't know if the weather's a massive thing. I think for me it, it is. But I think in terms of the Aussies uh, who are making it work over here and who are our best cyclists, that's not a obviously it's not a draw card for them because they're uh, they're loving the winters over here. And speaking of Hagee, Jack Haig, the Aussie climber that moved to Andorra seven years ago, he hasn't been back to Australia since. This is him talking to Willie Smith about why. I've been in Andorra quite a long time, and I kind of called it my permanent home. So I actually. Yeah. Haven't been back to Australia now since the end of 2014. Okay. So. Okay, okay, but have you completely not been there? Yeah, like for, I haven't been there. For, uh, yes, so that's six years now. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The last yeah. time I was in Australia was the Herald Sun tour, my first year professional. And okay. then I took a flight yeah. from there to South Africa for my first training camp with the team. And I never went back to Australia. Yeah. So you never had ambitions for to it down under no well i kind of look at the season a bit differently that i'm probably never going to win to it under just with the style of rider i am like okay, yeah, yeah. if i compete against impy he's always going to beat me in intermediate sprints to get time bonuses yeah yeah but yeah that's the only reason i feel we not actually like sorry Daryl, if you're watching this <laughs> no i'm not sorry Daryl. <laughs> um but my goals are kind of around Paris, Nice, Wealth of Catalonia and kind of these places that happen later in the year. Okay. And I kind of feel if you go really deep in November, December to get ready for the Australian summer of yeah. national championships, uh, Tour de Under, Herald Sun Tour, you miss and you like sort of miss time the season a little bit. I kind of looked at it in a bit of a different way where like humans evolved always having the seasons. So yeah. we always had winter and summer. And winter was time, human evolution, where like we rested and evolved and like uh, yeah, yeah. hibernated. <laughs> and uh, when you go to Australia and Europe, you always have summer. Yeah, yeah. And you go back to Australia, your friends are having barbecues, getting out in the piss, you're yeah. trying to train, weather's yeah. hot. <laughs> and yeah. like, as much as I like cycling, I also like doing a lot of other things. What is winter though? Are any of them going to maybe Southern Europe or anywhere? No, a lot of the guys that I know just stayed in Andorra. Yeah. They're more than happy to cop the winter. Or even Monaco is... Santa Ben and... Monaco is still cold. Like every mountain still covered in snow there. As soon as you 
go yeah. above the sea level. Yeah, but what, what's so the think, coldest it's getting? Is it getting below zero though? Uh, not not America, probably. Well, not Wisconsin. Well, like I was last last week, it was minus twelve in Andorra when I was there. Like it's it's still proper cold there, and people are making it work and going training. Um, and a lot of them stayed the whole the whole winter and didn't leave Andorra. I think it's not wet; it's dry. It's just mm. freezing cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the sounds of it, they're happy to train in it. I definitely <laughs> would be opposed to that, but they love it and make it work. And I think that's something that I think there's definitely a massive benefit. If you can uh, set up here and make it your home, um, I think there is a big benefit. Like Lee Howard, my track teammate, but he was a pro. He lived uh, in Andorra full time, didn't go home, had a dog. And I think that's at the same time, it, if you can do that, if you're capable of setting up and really making it feel like home, there's a massive benefit to that. Mm. You don't need that. You don't need to travel across the world to yeah. Feel and home. I think um, Americans do love the trip, the trip back and forth. Speaking to a guy that's yeah. lives in Perth now, but um, the Americans, like just from my experience being on teammates with them, just love flying back and forward often. So they always feel like they are away from home in Europe. Whereas, yeah, as Pabby just said, the Australians might not feel so much like they're they're away from home. Obviously, they are even further away from home than Americans are, but they've set themselves up so that they don't have that feeling while they're there and that they have that good base. Mm. And that was a massive thing for me. Like we've got we've got a really nice place here. And that was so I want to be here. Like I want to enjoy my time when I am over here and set it up as much as home as possible. Um, yeah, because we are so far away. And I think being young too, like you don't want to be living in a shoebox. You'd rather be somewhere where you're comfortable and, and happy to come home to after every race. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, if you ever do get to that point where you're staying in Europe over the winter and you want to talk about how to dress appropriately, let me know. Shoot me a message. Uh, I've lived in, I lived in Roden, Wisconsin for most of my life, and it's definitely a topic I overthink about. So, yeah, let me know. I think if TDU and Nationals stay in an event, I don't think I'll be staying over here. I can guarantee that. You don't think you'll ever become a permanent resident of Europe during your pro career? Oh, I'm a, I am a permanent resident of Europe. Well, I'm a... I am a taxpaying resident, um, but nah, I think, uh, look, my family's back home, my puppy's back home, uh, all my friends are there, and um, yeah, I love I love it over there, um, and yeah, if, if a world tour bike race and, and nationals are on over there, that's where, that's where I'll be. Luke seems to have put a lot of thought into how these other moving parts of living as a professional will work for him. So there are a couple of areas that Jason and Cyrus were interested in hearing more about. And the first is a big adjustment in training that is actually a recommendation from an early 2021 paper from Peter Leo and James Sprague. And that is reducing volume and intensity between races once the season commences. I was was wondering, what do you think is the hardest part of maintaining form, you know, in terms of the components of maintaining that high form? Uh, you know, as far as training a large amount of volume, putting in really intense efforts and holding them where you need to hold them or sleeping enough to recover, staying off your feet, eating right out of those things. What do you think 
is the one that you struggle with the most? Uh, I think doing less after races. That's like the biggest thing. I'm like, so in my head, it was like, all right, finish the race, day off, let's build back up and, and keep going. But uh, it's been almost like one week of, say, 400, 500 TSS, like 10 hours um, post-racing. And I think that's something that in your head you're like, man, I'm I'm going to be creeping next race or I'm losing a lot of form. But it's it's soaking up the week you've just done and coming coming out of it a lot better. Um, and that was something I noticed in the last race. I had like a really, really big sort of break, you could almost say, after Catalonia. Um, and you turn up to stage one of the next stage race and you're you got no clue how you're going to go. Um, but the legs are there. And I think that was, it's, it's an unknown how you're going to turn up. But I think having those breaks after stage racing uh, sort of really helps you soak, let your body soak up what you've done and, and hold that form as such. Um, yeah, you might lose a bit of your, your fitness, but I think in terms of your race fitness and, and the on-off power, um, you, you increase that and, and your capabilities of, of being able to do that. So I think it's it, less is more in a sense during a season. Um, yeah, in between races, just recovering really. You might do a couple of day effort days of activations, but that's about all. So with that, do you think the time off and the load that you are prescribed after that, the training you are prescribed after that, do you think that's coming from a place of mostly experience or do you think they are using a training load model to model and predict when you're going to be able to um, have load put on again? Um, I think for me personally, it's it's based off experience with uh, guys that they've had come through like the track program uh, as such, like in the previous years or most recently they've had Hayter or or before that they've had those, those Wigos and guys like that and Cavs that they can sort of see how you react to road racing coming off the track. Um, but then on the other hand, I, I guess that with the pure roadies, they can monitor that with a lot more science and evidence-based stuff because they've got those massive days on, and years in the legs. But uh, yeah, that's just a, as a guess. I'm not sure exactly, but I think from the track, they can sort of see in the past what's what's worked really well. Um, and that was a massive thing going to this team was they've had experience with a rider like myself. Just, just on the track experience thing, do you have you had much a chance of a chance to talk to those the other trackies on your team or like former trackies like Garrett Thomas, for example, and compare experiences that those guys have had? Obviously, like I don't don't know if if your goal is to to be the next Garrett Thomas, but obviously someone that's done the transition pretty pretty well to get to that level. But is are you making use of having him on the team and sort of trying to get some stuff off him yet, or haven't you had a chance to do that yet? No, I wish I uh, I missed both camps because of Aussie summer, and that's probably going to be a frequent occurrence. Um, and I haven't been on a race with him. I've got Romandy with him though, so that'd be I'll pick his brains there. Um, but I've got along well with uh, Pipo really well, Hater and Viviani and, and the likes of them. So I've really spoke to them heaps and been on a few races. Uh, but yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to meeting Jay at Romandy and and picking his brain a bit. But hmm. The final area is probably the biggest lesson Luke took away from Catalonia. You can't win everything. Or a better way of saying it is, you can't aim to win every race you enter. But after years of winning, Luke has a winning mindset, and I've heard him say that it's something you can't teach or train. This puts his own pressure on to perform on himself. 
And coming from this place has served him well in single day races and time trials. But the transition to the top level of road cycling is also about finding that balance for the number of races and types of races you can do as a professional in a season. This, for Luke, is still a work in progress. Last one for me is a question from one of our listeners that we got through the social media. So uh, it sort of it goes on a bit from our conversation we had with Shannon, but um, there is with you being the, the new big thing out of Australia, there's a few big things coming out of Australia on the road, which is good to see, but um, there is that pressure from, as with any top-level sport, people are watching and, and having these expectations how much of that are you feeling and what are your own expectations i know you've set big goals for yourself before and you like saying right i'm going to go to the world champs and i'm going to win it so it's not like you're um yeah it's not like you're you're talking yourself down ever but is is the expectation something that you've found difficult as as those have come um, as you come into more of a global spotlight? Uh, yeah, I think the the hardest part's been not going to every race trying to win. In a, in a sense, like given the last few years, that's you turn up to three races a year and you're going to every single one to win. So the mindset sort of does change and, and switch a bit. Uh, and for sure, I've got a lot more expectation and pressure on myself than what the team do. Uh, they really just wanted me to learn. Uh, but I think, yeah, coming from my background, yeah, I'm turning up to every race wanting to do well. Um, uh, yeah, and I think obviously you see a lot of young guys coming up uh, through the ranks and, and it's just natural to want to wanna be like them. And, and the thing is they're winning the bike race, so you want to be doing that as well. So, yeah, for sure there is pressure and there's no there's no hiding that. Um, and that's just the way the sport's changing. Um, but for me, I think like the biggest thing I'm just trying to I'm trying to remind myself is I just haven't had the race days or exposure because uh, these guys are coming out and winning. Like I'm the same age as a bloke that's won two tours already. Like you can't even compete with that. Um, yeah. Oh, there is for sure. There's pressure. There's no hiding that. Uh, but I think a lot of it's coming from myself and just the mindset that I've grown up with and. I'm sure that's the same with uh, Sam, who got his first win yesterday, which was awesome. He's turned up and he's going to a bike race to win. Um, and yet, Cal and all those boys are the same. It's just the way we've been brought up, and and it's that winning winning mindset, I guess. And that's what most track riders have. Yeah. So obviously, like with having such success, as soon as you as you've come through the ranks, you've always been going for the win. At a race like Catalonia, where there's some days where you're not performing as you'd like to, even if it's what's the team's expected is going to happen do they reach out then and and check in on you after that or are they just saying oh we expected you to to be in that group anyway it's all good are they um looking out for you in that sense or do you have to kind of sing out yourself and go oh, I, I didn't want that to happen in this scenario no they they could see i was a bit down and uh and reached out and and just like reassured me that there was there was no expectation or anything um because yeah, for sure, I was, I was hoping to get a result, and I am at every single race I go to. Um, but yeah, I think especially after Catalonia, I was a bit like, wow, that's a, it's a different sport. This world to a stage race in Europe, like that level was, like nothing I can I can explain. Um, so it was a massive eye opener, and I was a bit down. And you're always like, wow, there's a there's a big gap there to fill. Um, yeah, yeah. 
and you're able to turn that into a positive, then I guess in terms of going, okay, well, like now I actually know something I've got to work on. Like obviously before there's a lot of, okay, I'd, lo- I'd love to get this many more watts out of this kind of effort so I can win this TT. But now you've sort of got this whole area that you can can look towards. Um, is that something that you've been able to reframe since then or because it's something that's more out of your control, you're just focusing on other things instead? No, I think just more selective on on the goals and and what I want out of it, and not expecting too much uh, on the overall. Like I guess for me with Riz Romandy, it's don't look at the overall big picture. It's that like last TT, for example, where I can focus on that, and it's a it's a race that's in my control, and not uh, not a five hour race that could just explode to bits that I'm not capable of doing. Um, yeah, and that sort of fits in yeah. line with what I've done in the past, which was just focus on a on a TT or a race that's in my control rather than not being one. What struck me most about getting to know Luke is his long-term thinking, especially around sustainability in the sport, from planning the move to road after going all in on track for a few years to making sure that each part of his training, performance and lifestyle keeps him performing for years to come. Being only four months into a professional career, this tells me a lot about him. For sure I can do it and in my head it's, it's following the regime and it's, I'm going to be the best cyclist for it and get my best result but I wouldn't be able to do 10 years of it if I want to do this for hopefully a fair chunk of time. I can't be crazy on it. Like I love it, I'm into it, I love the numbers and and being crazy onto it, but I know that it would burn me out sooner rather than later. Not that it has yet, but it would. And it's this awareness and attitude that seems to answer the question, outside of talent, why Luke has progressed so quickly to the top level of cycling. He is certainly one to keep an eye on. Thank you, Luke, for coming on the show and opening up about your transition to a pro cyclist. I'm sure we all will be wishing you well and success in your career. Please make sure you subscribe to or follow this podcast in whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. Go ahead. You can find that button. It's in the app. It's probably a heart or it says follow or subscribe. It's in there somewhere. Go and do it right now while you're listening, please. And thank you.